When I was a teenager, and yes, that was way back in the last century, um, I can remember a few times when my parents really lashed out and we went out to what I considered to be a really, really nice restaurant in Toowoomba up on the range called Wise's. Um, some of you probably remember it. Uh, put, up, put your hand up if you've ever been to Wise's to eat. There's a few hands that have gone up. Yep. That's not there anymore. Very sad. Very sad. Um, but for those who haven't been there, it's one of those all-you-can-eat smorgasbords. Right? So there's all this food and you can eat as much as you like. And, and I still remember the first time that I ever went there as a young teenage lad, it was exactly what I pictured heaven might be like. <laughs> I mean, like we'd heard about, you know, this, this heavenly banquet that we're going to have, you know, and, and of course when I was a young fella, all I used to picture of this heavenly banquet was really nice food and lots of it. And um, now that I'm a little bit older, I tend to think of the heavenly banquet a little bit differently. I think about it more about the company that we keep. Um, and up in heaven, we'll be there with, with Jesus and we'll be basking in the presence and the glory of God. But back then, I was pretty shallow. I'll admit it. I was pretty shallow. I went about as deep as my stomach. And um, to me, that was what I thought the heavenly banquet was all about. So when I saw the tucker at that place, as I remember it, there were two rooms just stacked full of food with multiple layers. It sort of like almost had shelving built so that you had several layers of food. And um, I remember there was roasts and fish and roast veggies and all sorts of seafood that I wouldn't eat, you know, like lobster and Morton Bay bugs and prawns and mud crabs and sand crabs. And some people would probably prefer that, would they? But not me. I, I wasn't into that. Then there was all sorts of other stuff, you know, stews and things that I wouldn't even really look at and, and salads and stuff, of course, but they don't count. But then there was a second room and, and it was just stacked full of desserts, homemade macadamia ice cream and brandy snaps and chocolate eclairs and cheesecakes and pavlovas and meringues and slices and chocolates and lollies. Teenage, growing teenage boy heaven. Okay, you got the picture? Well, you can imagine what happened. That It's a pretty expensive restaurant, eh? Like To have food like that and as much as you want, it had to be pretty expensive. And I knew that my dad had paid a lot of money for us to eat that night. And when I saw those rooms stacked full of tucker, I thought, right, I'm not going to let my dad down. I'm going to do my best so that dad gets his money's value out of this and... And so I got a plate and I loaded it up right to the top and, and I went back to my seat and I sat down and I ate it all down and I was full. But then they said to me, you know, you can go back for more. Well, maybe I'm not that full. <laughs> so I, I, I picked up my plate and they said, no, 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 leave your plate there. Get a clean one. Oh, okay. And feeling guilty about doing extra, leaving extra washing up for someone, I left the plate there and went back and picked up a warm plate and, ooh, nice warm plate. And I had a bit of an advantage then because I, first time around I'd tasted a little bit of everything. I didn't know what anything was going to taste like. Now I knew what was best, didn't I? So I just got the two or three best things and just loaded the plate up again. How much salad do you think was on there? None. Okay. So I loaded the plate up again and I went back and and sure enough, my dirty plate was gone. I sat down and I ate and I ate and I ate and I ate. And I finished that plate and I was still full. 
But that's all right, that didn't stop me. Away I went again. You can imagine how the night unfolded. I think I had another another dose of mains and then I had some dessert and then another main and then another dessert and it just went on and on and on. And I ate, I ate, I ate. And I tried to keep up with my brother, but I couldn't. He was a year older than me and he could do better than me. And I was so full and I was sick. I was so sick. I just felt, oh, this is terrible. But gee, I'd love to do it again. Uh, now these days, I can't bring myself to go to an all-you-can-eat smorgasbord because one plate and I'm busted. I, I just can't do it anymore. Must, must, things change as you get older. I didn't think that had ever happened, but apparently it has. But sometimes, even though it's not good for us, sometimes we go to excess uh, just because we feel we can. So we do. And knowing human nature as it is, sometimes we do take advantage of a good thing or or more probably we take a good thing for granted and we abuse it. And Christians can be like that when it comes to God's grace. Um, We get tempted to keep on sinning because we know that God will forgive us. Um, it, it's like an endless smorgasbord of forgiveness. I just keep sinning as much as like, it's all right, I'll just go back because there's going to be more forgiveness there for me and get some more. So I know I should be resisting this temptation, oh, but maybe I'll just let it slide this one time because after all, God will forgive me, hey. That's what grace is all about and God's full of grace. Somebody once said, I like committing crimes God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged, he thought. So you know what I'm talking about? Uh, If the more I sin, the more grace God gives me, does that mean it's okay for me to go on sinning? Do some more sinning, then I get some more grace. And Paul answers this question. That's what the reading's been about today. And I did a very careful translation from the Greek of what Paul said. And this is pretty much what he said. Can I keep on sinning so I can get more grace? And he said, not on your nelly. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's pretty much what he said. Has anyone here ever died? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, about a near-death experience. Has anyone here died? No hands. Roy's got his hand up. Jan's got a hand up. Or she's nodding. I think they know what I'm getting at. Has anyone here been baptised? Put your hand up if you've been baptised. Yeah? Well, you have died. What was it like? You see, in baptism, we were baptised into Jesus Christ. We're baptised into union with him. We're joined together with him. And this word can be used sort of like when you graft a branch onto another tree. That's that's the sort of union, the joining together. We become one. And so we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Okay, so if we have died, what does that look like? Does that mean that our breathing shut down and our heart stopped beating? No, of course not. Well, well what does it mean? What does it look like? When you were baptised, you went down under the water. It's a symbol that you died and were buried with Christ. And provided the person who did the deed was gracious enough to let you up again in less than three minutes, um, 
when you came up again out of the water, it was a symbol that you were rising again to life with Christ. But here we're learning that baptism is more than a symbol. Now, I hope you realise this. Baptism is more than just a symbol. There's something about you that actually died in the whole coming to faith and being baptised event. We have actually been united, actually joined together with Christ in his death. And this is such that Paul could say that our old self, right, the old Michael, was crucified with Jesus. And it's not just that sinful part of us. It's not just that little bit that we don't like and wish that we could be rid of. It's not that little bit blokes that, that embarrasses our wives that they'd like to be rid of. It's all of us. Our whole self. Our old self has been crucified by Jesus. As John Stott puts it, he says, What was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, But the whole of me, as I was before I was converted. Now this is important for us to understand, and this is what Romans has been concentrating up until now. Before you became a Christian, you were so far gone, you were such a mess, you were so not just influenced by sin, but ruled over by sin and controlled by sin, that there was nothing worth saving, not one bit. And this is completely contrary to what the world would say. The popular humanist notion is everybody has some good inside of them. We've just got to find the good inside that person and love them for the good that's in them and develop the good that's in them and that'll overcome all the bad that's in them. But that's just not the way it is. The act of coming to faith in Jesus and the act of baptism is our old self being put to death with Jesus because we were so corrupt. Right, so if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, what does that mean for us? Well, firstly, it means that we're no longer slaves to sin. We used to be ruled over by sin. We used to be slaves to sin. We were captured by it. We couldn't break free from it. Sin just seemed to have this hold over us. When we try to do the right thing, we go, I know that that was wrong. I know I hurt that other person. I know that... That was really a bad thing I did. I'm going to do better. And you set your mind to it and you strive. But I just can't achieve it. Sin seems to be master over us. Now, very attitude toward God was sin itself. Now, that's how it used to be. But not any longer. Because we used to be slaves to sin. But we've been set free. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Secondly, to be united with Jesus isn't just being united in his death. It means we're united in his life as well. It means that we live with Jesus today. Jesus hasn't left us alone and and being a Christian is not a dreary, dead experience. So many people, so many churches I've gone into, you'd think that you're preaching to to a room full of corpses, that there's just no joy in them and there's no life. That's not the way it's supposed to be. How could it, How could we possibly, being a Christian, be a dead experience when the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the author of life itself, when he is living inside of us? 
Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I have come that they might have life and have it to its full. And we do. And if I'm living a dreary, dead life as a Christian, well, I'm missing something. Because we live with Jesus and that means a life full of life. Um, a, a, a life full of love, a life full of power and life eternal. What else does it mean to unite with Jesus? Well, thirdly, Jesus died to sin. And fourthly, now the life he lives, he lives to God. And this is where the rubber hits the road for us today in, in the message, in the Bible reading that's coming through. We also must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And to demonstrate this, Paul gives us a commandment. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so we come right back round to the original question again. Is it okay to keep on sinning because God is gracious and God will forgive us? Not on your Nelly, it's not. We can't keep on sinning. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? Now, what we do with that question depends on whether Paul is giving us a command or whether he's stating a fact. Uh, There's two ways that we can take that sentence. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The first way to take that sentence is as a command. We Christians should realise that we must not live in sin. Okay, So it's a moral appeal telling us, don't do it. Don't live in sin. And a second way we could take it is as a statement of the way things are. Uh, we Christians are no longer able to live in sin. It, it's a theological impossibility. It's telling us if you find yourself living in sin, well, you're not a real Christian because if you were a real Christian, if you truly believed in Jesus, it would be impossible for you to fall into sin. So in other words, the question is, is living in sin a possibility to be avoided or an impossibility to be recognised? And the way the passage unfolds leaves us in no doubt, it's a command. We Christians should realise that we must not live in sin. Um, now, living in sin um, describes a lifestyle of sin. It's an habitual practice of sin, such that one's life could be said to be characterised by that sin rather than being characterised by the righteousness of God. Um, now, you, you don't lose your mind. When you become a Christian, you don't lose your mind. And you don't lose your will and you don't lose your ability to choose how you live. Um, So Christians always have the choice before us, am I going to choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing? I, I know this is something that God's telling me not to do. Am I going to do that or am I not? But I want to draw a bit of a distinction here. Living in sin means continuing on in a sin with no intention of stopping, making no effort to to repent of that and change the way we live. Now, uh, of course, in in our society, 
you know, it's probably even, if I probably should be saying about 20 years ago, if you, if you said, oh, so-and-so is living in sin, what do we, what do we mean? Well, it's just a bloke and a lady shacked up together, okay? Um, whereas today society doesn't bat an eyelid at it. Um, but living in sin is much more than that. That's an example of it. If two Christians were to decide to live together out of marriage, well, yeah, that would be living in sin simply by the matter it's, okay, this is the wrong thing to do and I'm making a commitment to this, I'm going to keep doing it. Um, but that can translate to anything we do in our lives. You might be a habitual cheater on your tax return. Well, that's living in sin. If you have no intention of changing it and, and being honest about it, well, that is living in sin. All right, so if as Christians we're told that we must not live in a life of sin, is that legalism? I mean, over the last few weeks as we've been working through Romans we've just discovered that we can't be good enough and we've been learning that we need God and we need his righteousness to be saved and and if we're trying to be saved just by us being good well we're going to fail at that but now we're told but don't go on sinning is that legalism is that going back to trying to do it ourselves well no it's not but what's changed I'll tell you what's changed Before you become a Christian, you were a slave to sin, but you're not a slave to sin anymore because Christ has taken that away. Sin isn't your master anymore. See, telling someone who is a slave to sin to not let sin reign is like telling a drowning person to swim ashore. It's just useless. They're drowning, for goodness sake. They They can't swim ashore. It's like that, telling someone who's a slave to sin, stop sinning, they just can't do it. It's it's an impossibility. But telling someone who has died to sin not to let sin reign is like telling someone who's been plucked from the sea into a lifeboat, don't jump overboard. You see the difference? Um, So who is responsible for obedience? Does obedience to God just happen naturally uh, or is it something we have to work at? Well, to be true to the scriptures, we must recognise that obedience to God is actually something we have to work at. Verse 12 says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It says, don't give in to following the passions of your mortal body. Now, your mortal body, that's just... Who you are, right? Your, your body. And it's always telling you to do things contrary to, to what God wants you to do, doesn't it? Or am I the only sinful person here? No? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm glad. I was, I was worried that I was amongst all of the super holy and, and I was the only sinner here. Um, verse 13 says, Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, your members, that's your bits. Right, So your hands, your feet, your, your legs, your, your tongue, your, your eyes, your mind. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Do, however, present yourself to God and do present your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your tongue to God as instruments of righteousness. See, we absolutely have a part to play in obedience to God. But, of course, the fact that Jesus is with us, the fact that he lives with us, 
helps us to achieve what we could never do without him. And for us to live righteous lives is now possible because we're not under law, but we're under grace. Let me explain that. Um, So far in Romans, Paul has been laying it down, the difference between living, trying to achieve righteousness by the law, keeping a whole bunch of rules and regulations, as opposed to being made righteous by God because Jesus died for us on the cross. So we, because our faith is in Jesus, we're no longer living under the law. If we were still living under the law, every time we mess up, it'd be like a child spoils a sandcastle. Um, you know, you're building the sandcastle and, oh, I made a mistake, what do we do? We just demolish the whole thing and start over again. Um, under law, we would be deserving of punishment over and over and over again. And some people think that, that was, that's what God is like. Right? If we mess up, then he's, he's going to punish it. I remember a cartoon I, I saw once on the... Um, Far Side Comics, and it had a picture of God at his computer, and it had one button on it, and it said smite. And they thought that was what God does, as he just hurts people. Um, But because we're not living under law anymore, because we're living under grace, the Lord is patient with us. And when we mess up, we have every confidence that the Lord does forgive us. He will forgive us and he won't give up on us and he won't desert us and he won't take his Holy Spirit from us and he will continue to refine us and purify us and perfect us because we're living in grace. There is this endless smorgasbord of grace. All you can, all the grace you can take. God will just keep pouring his grace in. But let's not take that grace for granted. That's what Paul is saying here. It's available. But let's not take that grace for granted. Because we've died to sin. We can't go on living in sin. We have to be different. You know, if we sort of think, if you know, Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to be born again. Now, that means we're born to something new something very different to what we once were. And this is a people who are born to righteousness. To finish up, I just want to make one last point. For most people, when they read a passage like this one, it's very easy for us to find ourselves focusing on all of the negatives, on all of the failing, all of our failings, and and to walk away with the attitude, well, I'm not good enough. Uh, I've failed God. I've been living in sin. I've got to try harder to be a better person. I'm not sure I can do that. Now, I'm not going to deny some of the validity of some of those feelings, but what I really want us to do right now is to focus on the positive action. We walk in a newness of life. Um, Now, I hope that sounds good to you, to walk in a newness of life. There's, There's stuff that we need to leave behind. Stuff about our old life, which is just not good. It's awful. Well, in Christ, we walk in a newness of life. Uh, we're told that, that, we're, that we're free from sin. Now, I don't think there's anybody that really doesn't want to be free from sin, is there? Um, and as a response to this, we live for God. Well, that's got to be good. 
And if we commit every part of our body to serving God, what's going to be left to be doing evil? I know my mum used to always have this thing she'd say to us kids, you know, idle hands are the workers of the devil. Uh, did anybody else's mum ever say that? Yours did, Sal? Yeah, to, to you. Other siblings, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure my mum said it to my sister and brother. Yeah. Um, and if we start presenting ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, you, we're going to find that really hard uh, to, to mix that up with being instruments of unrighteousness. So I guess what I've always found is trying harder and harder and harder to stop sinning can sometimes be a whole lot less productive than concentrating on the positives and filling my life up and filling my day up with God, worshipping him and serving him.